Welcome to NC Retold. A place where we get to know North Carolina. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Corey George. Today's episode of NC Retold is brought to us by Pilot Surveying and Engineering, providing civil engineering and land surveying services across the Carolinas. Check them out on the web at www.pilotse.com. Today, our guest is a 31-year NC State professor, professional engineer, and member of the Sweet Potato Hall of Fame, Dr. Michael Boyette. Dr. Boyette, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Court. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. So, Dr. Boyette, when I think about my time at NC State and um, the professors that perhaps perhaps impacted me the most, you're probably the first name that comes to mind. And a lot of our listeners are going to learn about you today, um, but first and foremost to me, you were the senior design capstone engineering professor at the, the biological and agricultural engineering department, which we're here today at Weaver Labs at NC State. And so one of the things that stuck with me the most is the book you made us read, Don't Take the Last Donut. Where did you come up with the idea of including Don't Take the Last Donut in the curriculum? That's a good question. Um, I guess it came about because I've got some experience. I haven't always worked at NC State. I did work briefly in industry, off and on, uh, while I was going to school, and then after I got my BS degree. And... Uh, I realized at some point in time that when you are hired by a company, uh, you represent that company. Uh, whether you you know it or not, or whether you realize it or not, you represent the company. And companies would like to put their best foot forward. And so you really need to know how to behave and some of the, the social etiquette of the business requires. And so I'm, I've been a voracious reader all my life. I've got probably 10,000 books at my house. And... Um, I probably read most of them, uh, some of them many times. But I, one of the places that I always like to go is used bookstores. And so I was in a used bookstore one day, and I saw this book, and it says, Don't Take the Last Donut. And it kind of piqued my interest, and I kind of thumbed through it, and I'm thinking, uh, this is the kind of stuff that my students need to learn. And so that's that's really how that came about. Don't Take the do- Last Donut is basically just a – uh, a saying that says, you know, don't don't be the person that takes the last one, or don't be the person that's, uh, you know, that stands out. And there's certain etiquette that is required, and that's part of it. Okay. So, I will tell you, I think that that book was incredibly valuable in going into the industry because there's a lot of things that it 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 gives you a head start on, really going into industry. There was another reason too. Uh, we we you know we are in the business of educating students and preparing them for the for the larger world, and so we you know, have opportunities to talk to potential employers and uh, big companies, small companies, whatever. And occasionally they would mention this that uh, they would like for to to have their employees to go even go to charm school as they say, and. Um, and they would do that, and so we said, "Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll give them a head start. We'll we'll do a little bit of that in the beginning." And um, I think it's paid off. I think students, uh, you're not the only one that has mentioned this. 
that uh, this was sort of something that many times when you're when you're uh, interviewing for a job, it's not the big things that really causes you to get the job. It's sometimes the small things that you think are insignificant, but the person across the table from you may think it's a big deal. So that's one of them. Just gives you a, a kind of a step up. Yeah, well, cer- certainly manners and etiquette are extremely important, though not necessarily taught at the collegiate. Not you don't get a class number associated with that. So you've been here in Weaver Labs for a long time. Tell me a little bit about how you got here. You you're from North Carolina, from Wendell, right? I'm from Wendell. And, and, and by the way, it's pronounced Wendell, even though it was named after Oliver Wendell Holmes. Okay, all right. So, so you grew up in Wendell, and tell me a little bit about what what was what was it like growing up in Wendell? You grew up on a farm, right? Which right. is, I'm assuming, what kind of sparked your interest or lifelong journey into the agricultural engineering and uh, profession. Yeah, I grew up on a farm a couple miles outside of town, and uh, it's in eastern Wake County. And eastern Wake County is, was was and still is a little bit big in tobacco. And, in fact, when I grew up, I grew up on a tobacco farm. Uh, back in those days, um, you could raise a family and do quite well on five, six acres of tobacco. Uh, it was hard work. Uh, it was mostly family work, and it was year-round. And the old joke was that it takes 13 months a year to, to grow a crop. And um, that was the world that I knew. Everybody that I knew in both directions, up and down the road, that's what they do. They, they grew tobacco. There were, there were some people that didn't. There were some people that worked uh, what we would call a public job. Uh, but it was, it was mostly just an orientation of tobacco. And um, that's the world I knew. It's occurred to me over the years that um, at the beginning of your life, your, your area uh, that you're familiar with is small. You know, you know your home, you know your parents, you know your, your neighborhood, your backyard, or whatever. And then as you get older, you, you know, your world expands. And then as you get older, it shrinks up again. And so sometimes when you get old and decrepit and you can't get out, then about all you know is your backyard. But when I, when I first came to NC State, I graduated from high school in 1966. I came to NC State. And I have told many people that uh, NC State was ready for me, but I was not ready for NC State. Uh, as far as being an engineer is concerned, um, I've always been kind of a, an inquisitive person. I like to read. I don't like to read fiction. I like to read technical books and, and histories and that sort of thing. So I was always a voracious reader. Um, but I was in the fourth grade in 1957, and 1957 was an event occurred that was very much like the event of 9-11 or whatever, and that was the year that the the Russians sent up Sputnik. And uh, all of a sudden, it became very clear to everybody, and we were were in the middle of the the Cold War, and it became clear to everybody that uh, we were probably going to be behind the Russians if we didn't do something about it. And so they rushed, and and science, and, and STEM in particular, was not part of the curriculum or a big part of the curriculum. And so they rushed out and they got a book, uh, got us some books. And the t- I remember the title of the book. In fact, I've got a copy of it. Uh, the title of the book is The Work of Scientist. And it was written in 1936. And it was the best they could do. But they really emphasized that in school, in all the grades. And I really got interested in it. And, and uh, 
I remember they encouraged us to do collections of this, that, and the other, and rock collections, and leaf collections, and pine cone collections, and all that. And so I really got interested in it. And um, then, you know, a couple of years later, we got into some other things, and I finally determined that I was reasonably good in math. And um, so I got to thinking about, well, maybe I want to be an engineer. And I really didn't know much about what engineers did. I knew they designed stuff. Uh, and that's kind of what I carried through uh, throughout uh, in, into high school. One of the things that we did in high school was we had a very, very strong program doing um, science projects. And so every year, you, the students were encouraged to do a science project. And so I did a science project in my freshman year uh, that I got out of Scientific American. And uh, it was it was way, way ahead of anything that anybody else was doing. In fact, it was way ahead of anything that I was probably capable of doing either. But I thought it was very interesting. And um, by the way, I still have parts to it. That okay. I've, I've saved it all these years. But uh, <laughs> Must have been great. It was. It Must was, have been a winner. It was It was a winner. And uh, I was so proud of it. I won first place in the, in the junior science fair. I was a freshman. And in fact, I was so proud of it. I've got the uh, blue ribbon faded as it is, hanging up in my office right now. But anyway, uh, one thing led to another, and um, so I want to be an engineer. And so we, uh, we had eventually had a, 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 a um, guidance counselor, and the guidance counselor, I went to the guidance counselor and told them I wanted to be an engineer, and they said, uh, we, you know, I don't think you can make it. And I said, why not? And they said, well, you know, you're from a little, little town. Uh, in fact, when I was growing up, Wendell had maybe 1,500 people. And uh, it was a, it, my my class was like forty people, thirty people in my senior in my freshman class, freshman through senior class. So I, uh, they said, we we just don't have the ability to teach you the math that you need to get into engineering at NC State. So think of something else. Well, I couldn't think of anything else, and so they gave me this little test to determine what I was interested in, and it came back that I would make a perfect forest ranger. Which is okay. I, you know, I'm, I, I can navigate in the woods. Uh, and so when I came off to NC State, I had registered in uh, forestry. <clears throat> now, the fall of 1966, uh, we, you know, we, we had tobacco on the farm. And um, we were finishing up harvesting tobacco. And orientation was a little bit later than it is now. Uh, orientation was the first week in September. And so we were finishing up tobacco. And so literally... We had been putting in tobacco, harvesting tobacco that morning. I go in, get cleaned up, had already packed my bags, and my parents came and dropped me off at the back of Alexander Dorm. I was 18 miles from home, and I could have just as well been on the back side of the moon <laughs> because I was, I was definitely out of my territory. And uh, my world all of a sudden got really, really big and really, really scary. And uh, I was up there, and um, my roommate now, he was almost as scared as I was. And uh, so we, we moved in the dorm, and we started the school. And the, the biggest lesson that I learned uh, was that I didn't belong there. I thought, uh, this is not for me. These, these kids are, these are city kids, and they've got much better education than I've got. I'll never be able to make it. And this is just 18 miles from home. I mean, 18, certainly you've 18, been to 18, 18. Raleigh, right, growing oh, up? Oh, yeah, sure. 
but um but it was uh it was it was a difficult transition and so he and i stayed at the dorm and i I will never forget the first day we were there and then we were going to spend the night and we sat there and we waited and we watched the sun go down and we finally decided that nobody was going to call us to supper and so we had to fend for ourselves and that was uh, that was a pivotal moment for me to i got to go out and find something to eat anyway uh after about six weeks this was 19, uh, the fall of 1966 was the first year that the, that the enrollment in NC state was over 10,000 students and there were less than 100 women on campus i remember i only had one class that had a girl in it and that was the english class wow uh so and they were they were crowded they didn't have all the dorms that they've got now and it wasn't all the apartments they've got now so uh, they they came along and they said, if you want to move out and if you can move, if you can commute, if you live within commuting distance or whatever, we'll give you your money back, and uh, you can go and and commute. And so I I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so I I started commuting, and I was riding with my first cousin, and he was in textiles, and of course he was trying to talk me into textiles. And so after a semester in forestry, I decided, okay, I you know I'll just go into textiles, and so but my heart was not in it. And so uh, I went for a semester. Grades not good. Uh, you know, if you, if your heart's not in it, you're not going to do a good job. Sure. And, and so started back in the fall uh, the next year, and uh, this was in '67. And '67, uh, you if you weren't in college, you were probably going to get drafted and go to Vietnam. And so I had made up my mind that's probably what was going to happen to me. So I, I, uh, my parents were not rich at all. We, my, my dad and mom were basically tenant farmers, and um, they were struggling to provide for me. And I was trying to do a little part-time work on the farm and everything. And I just decided it was just too much of a hassle to go to college. And what I was going to do is just get a job, and just wait to get drafted. So I went and took a job uh, in uh, here in Raleigh and at a machine shop, a large machine, a very large machine shop. And um, I had never been in a machine shop. I didn't know anything about machines um, in that regard. And so they put me in front of a drill press, and I'm drilling holes, and I'm working 10 hours a day, six days a week, swinging shifts, mm. which means I go in day shift for one week and night shift the next week. And that's not good. And making minimum wage. And minimum wage then was a dollar and a quarter. Mm. And uh, so I uh, I went to work there and thinking any day I'm gonna get um, I'm gonna get uh, draft notice and you know I'm, I'm gonna be gone and you know went on through the fall and into the winter and um, and one day uh, the um, foreman came by and he said uh, we got uh, we put in for draft deferments for some of our workers because we're considered an essential industry and your name is on the list. Okay, well that's good. Uh, so I continued to work there, and um, it was literally Corey. I can tell you, I would go in at five o'clock in the morning and sit down in front of that drill press on a bucket and start drilling holes. And they would be these metal tubs, uh, basically three foot cubes, and they would have a thousand parts in each one of them, and they'd be stacked up four high all the way down the dial towards my machine. And all I would do is I would take a part out of one tub, put it in, in the drill press, drill a hole in it, take it out, put it in another one, do the same thing over and over and over and over. And we were on on um, 
piecework. And so the more I did, the more I got. And so, you know, if I really did well, I could get maybe a dollar and 30 cents an hour. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot of money. Uh, and I was living at home. And one day, and you, uh, you were not attending school at this I time. I was not attending okay. school. And I had, I had decided the NC state was not for me. I had no place there. There was nothing there for me. And, um, and, uh, you know, that was just it. And I was just going to, I was going to basically run a machine for the rest of my life. That's what I was going to do. Uh, one night, um, the foreman came by and the foreman was an interesting guy. He was, uh, he looked just like Popeye. He was short. Uh, he had, uh, had, had, uh, anchors tattooed on his arm. And, uh, he, he, you've heard of people that every other word is a cuss word. Well, every other syllable for him was a cuss word. And, okay. uh, he had been in the merchant Marine in world war two and had two ships torpedoed out from under him and mm. had survived. He'd survived on a, on a lifeboat for eight days in the middle of the Atlantic ocean. He was rough. And, uh, he, he cursed, had, cursed like a sailor. Is that cur- named cursed, after him? Cursed like a sailor. And, uh, he, he gave nobody a quarter. I mean, he was, he was, he didn't have any friends at all, but for some strange reason, he kind of took to me. And so he came to me one night and he said, um, he said, you know, he said, boy, you don't, you don't belong here. Okay. I didn't belong in NC state. Now I don't belong here. Uh, where do I belong? And he said, uh, you, you're a smart guy. He said, you need to get an education. He said, you don't need to be doing this. He said, i tell you what you do. He said, why don't you go over to Wake Tech or somewhere and get you a degree in drafting or something. And he said, come back over here. And he said, we'll, we'll hire you back. He said, you don't need to be doing this. So I checked into it. And, uh, and that next fall, I go and to Wake Tech and I go for a year. And I'm working part-time on a farm. My dad and I had some hogs, and so we were making a little bit of money. And uh, I went to Wake Tech and got a degree in drafting. And... Uh, the day after I graduated, I drove back over to the plant and walked into to personnel. And the guy in personnel knew me, and, and I said, hey, well, I, I got a degree in drafting now, and I come back to get a job. And he says, uh, mm, he said, uh, we really don't have an opening for anybody in drafting. He Ouch. says, he says um, we just hired a, a, somebody the other day, and he said, we just don't have another opening. I said, is Smitty around? That was my foreman's name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, yeah. I said, uh, can you go get him? And so he went and got him. And, and so I saw him coming down the hall, and I went and spoke to him. And I told him, I said, look, I just did, I just graduated. And I said, I came back looking a job for drafting. And he says, there's no openings. He said, let me talk to him. So he stepped into his office, closed the door, was in there about 30 seconds, came back out. Both of them came back out, and the, the personnel manager looked at me, and he said, when can you start? And um, by that time, I looked around and see where Smitty was, and Smitty had already walked off. He'd left. He'd done his job. So I worked there, and um, and I was working in the drafting department, and, of course, there was drafting department and engineering department, and there was about 50 people in, in all together, all of us. And so I was working with engineers. And after a year or two of doing that, and it was it was okay work. Uh, it was what, nice. What type of stuff were you machining? Uh, these were big metal castings mostly, and uh, it was big stuff, heavy stuff. I mean, there were uh, we, the company I worked for made parts for nuclear power plants, okay. and so these were these were big big heavy stuff. 
so I worked there a year or two, and it finally dawned on me that, um, you know, I could probably, these guys, these engineers that I worked with, um, they didn't seem to be all that smart, smarter than I was. Uh, they had an engineering <laughs> degree, of course. And so I decided to um, that I would go back. And so I had had a disastrous um, couple of years at NC State, and so it took me a while to get back in. I had to go to summer school and all that, get my GPAs back up. But uh, I went to summer school, and the first course I took was, believe it or not, engineering graphics. <laughs> and uh, I went to class, and uh, I got to talking to the professor and told him that I had a degree in drafting, and he, I showed him some of my drawings, and he said, yeah, okay. He said, you really don't have to come back to class anymore. Well, there you go. And so I got an A on that one, and that was a big help. And one thing led to another, and I kind of went part-time and worked part-time for a while, and uh, which is no fun. It is no fun at all to go to school and then go to work and get off work at 10, 11 o'clock at night and try to study before you go to sleep and then get up the next morning and do the same thing. Mm. That is why, Corey, I have always thought that um, when I had students and they did not do well in class or they messed up on the test or something, yeah, it could be because they were lazy bums and they were out partying all night, but it also could be because they are working and yeah. they just can't can't find time to do everything that needs to be done. And I try to find out, um, you know, I, it's, I don't just blow it off, okay, you fail the test, and so that's, that's, that's not my concern. It is my concern. My, my job is to educate people, and so there's something that's hampering them, then, you know, I want to know about it, and maybe we can work something out. So, anyway, I, I, I went ahead, and eventually I came back, and um, it was really interesting. I um, <laughs> I came back to school full-time, and I did real well. I was making A's, and uh, I used to joke to people that uh, in the couple of years that I was gone from NC State, uh, it had gotten a lot easier. Uh, they had really lowered their standards a lot. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, I had gotten a lot more mature and had. So, so to that effect, do you think that it would benefit kids to have a couple of years of work experience between high school and college? I do, I do, I do, and uh, I think I'm personally, I, I believe that it would be fantastic for high school kids to go and learn some sort of trade or work some apprenticeship or learn how to do something because. It takes a little while in order to appreciate what you're going to school for in the future that it's going to hold. You're not just going to college to hang out with your buddies all week. I, I think you're exactly right. And I, and I think that to ask a 17 or an 18-year-old, what are you going to do for the rest of your life, and try to hold them to it is ridiculous. Sure. Uh, how many people come off to college and change curriculums two or three times? I mean, you know, I did. I was forestry, textiles, engineering, you know. So, um, but anyway, I, I think I think that's a good thing. I think a good, it's a good thing to get some experience and, and to work. Uh, and in fact, um, I would say probably a third of the students or, or more nowadays have got some kind of job. It's it's expensive to go to school. Yeah. And um, and there's not many of them out there that can do it on their parents' time. Uh, they have to have some kind of supplement. Either they're working in the summer, or they've got an internship, or they got something going on. So. Yeah, I think it's great. But uh, anyway, I graduated in 1976, got my degree here in bio and ag engineering. And the reason I got, I came to bio and ag engineering, uh, I was in tech, I came back and I, I was still in textiles. And I, I knew I didn't want to do textiles. I, I, I cared nothing for that. 
And just in, as a happenstance one day, I got to talking to a guy that I knew was in one of my classes, and he was in bio and ag engineering. And I had never heard of bio and ag engineering. I'd heard of civil engineering, I'd heard of mechanical engineering, I'd heard of electrical engineering, but I had never heard of bio and ag engineering. Which is not unusual, Corey, as you well know. I sure. mean, we're, we're sitting here off to ourselves, and, uh, and a lot of students come into our department from other departments, and the first thing they'll say, well, I didn't know you were here. I didn't know. I, in fact, the matter is, I was talking early this morning with a pr- prospective student who did not know we had bioneg engineering, didn't know what it was. So I was talking to him, and he said, you really need to go, go over there and talk to him. And so um, I go back to Textiles and I talk to the people in Textiles and, and my advisor. And uh, I told him, you know, I'm not satisfied and I wanted to go into bioengineering possibly. And I said, do you know anybody over there? And he said, yeah. He said, there's a guy named George Blum. And he said, I know him because he's a scorekeeper uh, sometimes for Wolfpack Athletics. And he said, I know him through that. He said, I think he's the undergraduate coordinator. So I go marching up uh, Dan Allen Drive. And I walk up to, and I had never been over here. I I walked up to the building and the door on the admin building on the east side of the building, it was the first door that I saw that looked like it's somewhere I could go. So I walked in the door, and the first office on the right, the door was open. And I walked in, and I said, I told who I was, and I said, I am looking for Professor Blum, B-L-U-M. And this nice man got up out of his chair, came around behind his, from behind his desk, put his hand out to me, and he said, I am George Bloom, so glad to see you. It That's took, a good start. It took him about maybe two milliseconds to convince me that I had struck pay dirt and I was in the right place. Corey, there is nothing in the world any better than the feeling that you're in the right place at the right time. I mean, it was like day and night. All of a sudden, I loved NC State. Okay. And he was my mentor. Uh, in fact, he was the mentor for a great number of people here in this department. He was the undergraduate coordinator. He was Mr. Bio and Ag Engineering in many, many ways. And he, he had an effect on hundreds, if not thousands, of students. And I always wanted to, I always thought, and he, he was my mentor, and he helped me. He helped me a lot. And uh, anyway, so I... Um, I I I um I came in here, went back to school, like I said, made good grades and everything, graduated. Um and by the time I graduated in seventy six and got my degree, I decided that academia was I, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do research, I wanted to teach. I I thought teaching is great. Um the idea that you can have an effect on people, you can have a good effect on people and uh it was it was just a good match for me. It was a good match for my skills. It was a good match for my personality. So I decided to go to grad school. And so I started my first year of grad school, and everything was going good. I had gotten married, and uh, my wife got sick, really. She had some real bad uh, health problems, and uh, 
basically she had to quit working and and i was i was still working with my dad on the farm some and so i decided i I really needed to to um to get a job and so i left grad school went back over to where i was a draftsman at this is the third time i'd worked there and they must have liked you they must have liked me and uh i went to work over there and um it was uh, it was it was good. I mean, I I was I could literally hit the ground running because I knew the product line. I knew the you know I knew every all the stuff, and so and they were glad to get me. And so I very quickly went on up into the to the uh, organization. And I was after a year or two, I was leading an engineering team. And uh, but uh, in 1979, Three Mile Island happened. And Three Mile Island was as close as we've ever come in this country to having a really, really bad nuclear accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was bad, but it wasn't it wasn't as bad as say Chernobyl or something like that. But anyway, um, and I remember the morning uh, after uh, that Cherno- uh, after Three Mile Island, the boss called us in his office and he said, "This is going to kill the nuclear industry for the next forty years." Well, it turns out it has. Mm. There has not been a new nuclear power plant licensed in the United States since 1979. And who knows when it'll ever be again. So, um, and so what happened was, was the, the, the company's budget of the company, the amount of money they were making was drastically reduced almost overnight to the point where they started laying people off. And I had a lot of seniority and, uh, but I was working on a project uh, that I had been assigned. It was a it was a product line that had not been really revised since the 1940s, and so we went to work on it. And it was really easy to cut a lot of the cost out of it. And so we did. We cut 40 percent of the cost out of it. And so we go up to the head office and we presented all this stuff, and it got shot down. And it got shut down for the reason, not because it was a good design or it was a bad design or because of anything like that. It was because the head of uh, marketing said, well, it don't look like our product anymore. And we, we, don't, we want it to look like our product, which I thought was a really bad decision. But anyway, so we flew back to Raleigh that afternoon and somewhere over West Virginia, 36,000 feet, I decided I'm going back to Weaver Labs. Weaver Labs is the best place I've ever been. So I came, got back into grad school and... Uh, Worked here. I was working on soft money. Had a grant to do uh, some work in the energy area, and on soft money. And one thing led to another, and uh, eventually I got my PhD. And shortly after my PhD, got my PhD, a, a position came open here, and I applied for it, and I got the job. And um, I worked in extension uh, as an extension specialist for about ten years, and um, mainly with tobacco. And uh, because I grew up on a tobacco farm. If actually, when I was an undergraduate here, Corey, um, probably a third of the people in the department were working on tobacco. Tobacco is a big money crop. Right. But eventually it kind of wound down and we got into other things here in the department. And and, uh, so uh, the tobacco specialist here in the department had retired and there was really nobody to take his place. And and, tobacco is a specialty crop and it requires a little bit of knowledge, and 
Uh, and so I had, you know, knowledge of it and I could speak the language and I could talk to farmers and, you know, I knew a little bit about it. And so I kind of assumed that responsibility. I don't think it was ever assigned to me. I just took it over. And tobacco went, tobacco research went through a lot in, in, in the nineties. Uh, we found out that uh, we had known for years that the major carcinogen in, in tobacco is something called tobacco-specific nitrosamines. It's a nitrogen compound. It's carcin- carcinogenic. Didn't know exactly how it occurred, but we did know that it was not in green tobacco. So it had to be something that was going on at curing, but we didn't know what. And uh, some research by private industry uh, sometime in the middle 90s figured out that it was because the tobacco was cured nowadays in uh, LP gas burn uh, burners. And mm-hmm. part of the combustion products is nitrogen oxide, which produces nitrosamines. So that uh, forced us to have to turn around and, and, and retrofit all the tobacco barns. And I was the, kind of the lead on that, uh, to do that and, and did testings. And after, the first year after we did that and we tested the tobacco coming out of these new, uh, retrofitted barns, nitrosamines in many cases were below detectable levels. So you don't hear about that. And tobacco So, so the, LP, just for everybody knows, that's liquid propane. Liquid propane gas. And before there was LP gas. We were using wood-fired oil, oil. We were oil. using oil for a long time, okay. and then we were using wood. And so, anyway. And you uh, converted from LP to. We, we still were using LP, but what we did is we put a heat, <clears throat> put a heat exchanger. Okay. Yeah. And, <clears throat> excuse me, so the product of combustion goes up the chimney instead of staying inside the barn. And then uh, very soon after that, um, very soon after that, uh, you know, once that was that was known, like I say, the tobacco companies can't wouldn't come out and say, okay, cigarettes are a lot safer nowadays. They're not going to say that. But the truth of the matter is, is they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I'm not advocating everybody go out and start smoking, but I'm just saying, right. I'm just saying, we, you know, we solved that problem. We helped solve that problem. And there were some other things too. Um, but uh, and then uh, I had always been interested in crop processing, and so I had. Uh, got interested in one of the big crops, and I thought had a great potential. And this was back in the, in the even in the eighties. I thought had a great potential with sweet potatoes. Uh, we grow really good sweet potatoes here in North Carolina. Most of the sweet potatoes that are grown in North Carolina are grown uh, about twenty or thirty miles on either side of Interstate ninety five. Interstate ninety five was built on an old dune line, mm-hmm. and so it's deep sandy loam. And that is exactly the kind of soil that you need for growing things like tobacco or sweet potatoes. And so a lot of the tobacco farmers were starting to convert to sweet potatoes. And one of the big problems they had was with storage. Now, sweet, it's been known for a long, long time, but you can store sweet potatoes for a year. George Washington had a sweet potato storage cellar in Mount Vernon, and he would put potatoes in them, and they'd have potatoes all through the winter and into the spring. The problem was nobody had figured out how to do that on a large scale. And uh, fortunately, I had gone to California and to their post-harvest school there and learned how they were cooling vegetables and moving air through great masses of all kinds of vegetables and fruits and everything. And so it occurred to me that we could probably apply that technology to sweet potatoes. And so I came back and, you know, I had just had some ideas, but... uh, 
back in those days, um, sweet potatoes were one of those things that uh, they were harvested in the fall. And uh, they were sold, and most of the potatoes were gone by the first of the year. There may be a few on you know, end of January, February, but farmers didn't have any really good way to store them. And so what happened is is that in, at harvest time, the prices were low because there was a glut on the market. Mm-hmm. But as the season progressed on in past Christmas, then the price would go up, and sometimes it would go up dramatically. In other words, 40-pound box of sweet potatoes back then would sell for 6 or $7, and then three months later, they'd be selling for $25. Wow. So it was an, it was a real advantage if you could figure out a way to do it. And so um, one day, I'm, I'm, I'm an extension specialist, and this was before I was teaching. And um, I'm sitting in my office, and the phone rings, and there's this guy, and he calls me up, and he said, uh, he said, my dad grew sweet potatoes. He said, we have a sweet potato building. He said, but it's not in very good shape. And he said, I want to I want to revise it some and make it better. He said, can you help me with the, the heating and refrigeration and uh, whatever? I said, sure. So I got out and talked to him, and in the course of the conversation, I said, you know, I just came back from California, and I saw the way that they move air through uh, big masses, millions of pounds of produce that's in pallet bins the same way we, we pack sweet potatoes to come out of the field in 1,000-pound pallet bins. And I said, I'm willing to design you something if you're willing to to stick your neck out and, and, and pay for it. And I said, I can't guarantee anything. So he thought about it, and then he said, okay, we, we'll try it. And it's a small scale. So I drew him up some plans. He built the plans that I did, and it was it was basically some a way in which we could mount fans that we could pull air through this mass of sweet potatoes horizontally. Mm-hmm. And that never been done before, and that was sweet, sweet potatoes. We, um, he, he harvested his potatoes, put them in the bill, and we turned the system on. And um, it was really a crudely done uh, electromechanical. It was before there was PLCs and, and computers and all that sort of thing. And so it was, it was kind of crudely done the way we controlled it, but we controlled it. And we started taking data. And it didn't take very long for us to figure out that we were onto something because what was happening was, was we were able to maintain the temperature and humidity in this room pretty precisely over a period of days in which the weather would fluctuate and all that. And so we kept looking at the potatoes. And this this farmer did not pack his own potatoes. He would just sell them on the market to other packers and whatever. And he asked me one day, this was on after Thanksgiving, maybe towards Christmas. He said, "Um, when do you think I need to sell them? I said, I don't know. I said, "Uh, I'd hold them as long as you can because the longer you hold them, the more money. And, of course, he knew that. Well, uh, it turns out that he held those potatoes, I think, sometime maybe the 1st of March or even the 1st of April. And the guy that he was sold uh, potatoes to in the packing line, uh, he was begging him every day to, to sell me these potatoes, sell me these potatoes. And so the guy held on to it. There is no doubt in my mind that when he sold those potatoes, that he was probably the owner of all the sweet potatoes that were in the United States at that time. Wow. And he got a premium price for them. And, in fact, he paid overpaid for the, for the, for the retrofits on that building. Well, um, farmers talked to each other. And the next year or two or three, I was inundated 
with requests for designs. And I, I literally design hundreds of sweet potato buildings, some from the ground up, some retrofitted into other buildings, you know, all different sizes, shapes, and everything. We did extensive research to fine-tune this thing, and we got computer controls for it. I had a graduate student back then that was a whiz with computer controls, and he did a great job. And um, and we did computer controls on it, and lo and behold, um, once we got refrigeration in these buildings, we were able to hold sweet potatoes you know, through the next summer. And what that allowed us to do, and, and we were the only place in, literally in the world that's doing this or was doing this, what it allowed us to do is to have some very uh, organized marketing of sweet potatoes. And where it had been a seasonal crop and where it had been a local crop, all of a sudden it became a year-round crop. And so if I'm a grocery store and I want to put sweet potatoes in my store year-round, I can do it. Also, if I run a restaurant and I serve baked sweet potatoes, I want uh, to have that on the menu all the time or whatever. Or if I'm a French fry manufacturer and I want to make French fried sweet potatoes, I'd like to have a supply year-round so I can operate my my factory year-round. Sure. So it opened up a lot for us. What what year is this? What year are we talking? We're talking about 88, 89, something like that. It was okay. year, actually, <laughs> actually, uh, uh, that was the year I got my PhD. I got my PhD in 90. Uh, so I was working on my PhD in 89. I was uh, doing all this design work for sweet potatoes, and I built a house. <laughs> oh, a couple and, things going and, on. And had a daughter. <laughs> so I was, I was a busy guy. But uh, but anyway, uh, within a few years, uh, it was adopted just really wholesale in, in the industry. And it really opened up. And so it is it is just great for me to go and visit with farmers that I knew back then that grew a few acres. And now if you go to their farm, it is huge. Uh, one, one in particular that I work with, is the farmer that um, he built a few years ago, $25, $30 million computer control facility for packing sweet potatoes. And he has the largest sweet potato storage facility in the world, and he ships about 60 or 70% of what he packs goes directly to Europe. Europeans are crazy about them. Wow. And uh, they see it as a a very healthy, which it is, very healthy uh, uh, vegetable. And... um, so we sh- we ship sweet potatoes over to Europe, and uh, somebody showed me a picture here a while back of a display in a grocery store in Moscow, Russia, in Russian, that said, uh, these are North Carolina sweet potatoes. I, I couldn't believe it. But uh, so it's, you know, and it's really strange, Corey, because North Carolina produces maybe, you know, 1% of the sweet potatoes that are grown in the world. China produces way more than we, I mean, they like 80% or something of the world production, but they feed most of theirs to, to animals, chickens and pigs and all. But a few years ago, once this got known, and like I say, not only do farmers talk to each other, but the industry talks and so the, the word gets out, it was almost every week or two we would get delegations from overseas that would come here and they want to know what we've done, what, what, how we, what do we do this? And 
my thoughts on it were this, and, and I have had lots and lots of offers, and, and I may be wrong, maybe not, I don't know, you can argue with me, but I have had lots and lots of offers. In fact, I just got one the other day saying, uh, we want you to consult and come over to this country or that country or the other country and show us how to do this. And I've never done that. I, in fact, I've always been a little bit reluctant to even go out of state. I've, I've gone to Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, and and talk to them about what we've done here. They they don't grow nearly as much as we do, but uh, and they don't export either. Um, but for me to go overseas and to tell them everything that we have learned seems to me to be a little bit disingenuous to the people that pay my salary. I mean, you know, my my, my salary comes from the taxpayers of North Carolina and. They're the ones that over the years have, and, and the industry, the Sweet Study Commission in the industry, they're the ones that have supported the research that we have done here. They should get the benefits of it. And it's just to hand it to somebody in Timbuktu on a silver platter and say, here, do this. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Now, you can argue, well, you know, I'm an, I'm an academic and we need this, you know, part of my job is to... You know, when, when I was hired, Corey, back in the day, I sat across the table from the dean in my interview uh, to, to be a professor, and uh, he was a wise old old bird, and he says, um, he said, Boyette, he says, uh, you know, here we're at the university, we're at Land Grant University, and he said, we only have two jobs. He said, the first job is to find out what the truth is. He said, the second job is to tell people about it. I never forgot that. That's That really encapsulates everything that we do here. We find out what the truth is, and we tell people about it. That's fantastic to we, continue we, that legacy. We we uh, we we, we uh, tell people about it through education, students, through extension. I'm a great believer in cooperative extension. It's, it's made a tremendous, a t- tremendous influence on agriculture in this country. Uh, we lead the world in agriculture. Primarily because of extension and what extension does. Extension is. You mean, you're talking about the country leads the world in yes. agriculture, or North Carolina? Possi- no, 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 no. The country, the country. Area. I, I mean, mean, we you cooperate with other land grant universities we, across we, the southeast we, of the country, right? We do, we do. But I'm just saying that cooperative extension is something that's been been in around for a hundred years or more, and it was specifically designed to take the information that is coming out of our research, ag research particularly, and to take it back to the farm. And to be honest with you, uh, I've thought about this a lot. When I was an undergraduate, I graduated in the class of six or seven or eight of us. I don't know. There wasn't, wasn't very many of us. But every single one of us were either off the farm or had some ag-related. Um, one of my fellow students, his father was a veterinarian. Another one ran a, a feed mill. But we all came to NC State, whether we we acknowledge it or whether we realize it or not, we came to NC State in order to help the people back home. I know what drudgery is. I've worked in the field, uh, you know, harvesting tobacco. I've, I've done all that. I know how hard that work is. And so a lot of us came, and, and the generation before us was the same. They came because they wanted to do something to make a contribution that would lessen that labor, that hard labor. Sure. 
you know, I've seen my parents come in. Uh, I've, I've come in from working all day. We would get up early in the morning, take out a barn and tobacco, put in one. Uh, you know, and by the time you got back at nighttime, you, you were, you know, you were exhausted. What do you think the percentage of kids coming now are coming from ag-related? In this department, probably more than any, maybe, I don't know, maybe crop science or something has got some. But uh, but I would say as a whole, NC State, I would say probably less than 1%. I mean, there just didn't that many farmers. I mean, I, sure. I can look at I can look at Wendell. When I was growing up, a uh, fertilizer dealership would have a um, – would have a barbecue and they would bring in extension people and they'd talk about this bug or that bug or whatever, you know. And there'd be 250, 300 people there, farmers, from the community. Now, probably, of course, we don't grow as much tobacco as we did back then, but probably now uh, we're talking about 10 to 15 farmers in the, in the area that grow tobacco. Now, they're growing a lot more tobacco. I mean, not many people nowadays that grow less than 100, 200 acres because of Economies of scale, but, um, but that's just you know, just not there's not that many farmers nowadays. We I grew up on a tobacco farm, and I'm 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 acutely familiar with first (laughs) primings and second primings, and we had these old, I mean, hand hewn log barns that we same here tier tier poles, and they we we still have them on our farm, but we stopped growing tobacco years ago. Yeah. That is uh, that is something that is a dying thing. Uh, I, um, I you know, there's there's Facebook groups for just about everything you can think of, and there's one called uh, Raised on a Tobacco Farm or something like that. And I joined it here a while back, and I enjoy reading some of the stuff that's on there. And it's amazing to me. I mean, I think I think that group has got like fourteen, sixteen thousand members, and it's amazing to me the things that people will say that is what we said expressions they used things they remember about that lifestyle and you know and it's like i thought when i was growing up you know i knew there was the background in a lot of other places but i was i thought everything we did in our little community that was that was it and everybody else did something different turns out that lifestyle was very widespread and and Mm -hmm. you know for whatever uh you know, we, this generation is, is going to be gone in a few years. There's not going to be many people that can remember hanging tobacco in a log barn. There's not going to be many people that can remember, you know, getting out and getting sand lugs or first primings and second primings and all that kind of stuff. There's not going to be many people that remember what life was like prior to the Internet and cell phones. This is true. This is true. Uh, <laughs> a student asked me a couple of years ago, what do we do before we had cell phones? And I said, we just sat around and said, we know we sure will be glad when we get cell phones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they went outside and played. Like we, normal. Out, that's like, we did We did stuff. Kids uh, grew up and went outside and played. So you, um, I'd say safe to say, you are fairly famous in the sweet potato community now. Being is that you're in the Hall of Fame. Tell me a little bit about the Sweet Potato Hall of Fame. Oh, it's it's a joke. It's um, there was a um, there was there was a lot of interest, uh, and it still is. I mean, the, the North Carolina Sweet Potato Commission is a organization that is actually was it was chartered by the legislature. I think they are allowed to charge farmers ten dollars an acre, or twenty dollars an acre, whatever it is, and the money is used for research and promotion. 
and uh, it's it's been it's done a it's done a great job and uh, so they um they have done a lot of promotion and years ago they promoted uh primarily uh the nutritional value and they would get some famous chef to whoop something up and and all this and uh many of the many of the big packers that were packing sweet potatoes and there's probably 25 30 big big packers here in north carolina maybe more uh and they would be promoting their own uh brands i mean you know and one of them came along and he was kind of innovative and he said what we need to do is we need to really do something that's kind of you know really get us out there get us into the public domain and so he came up with this idea of having sweet potato hall of fame and He had this idea of having the Sweet Potato Hall of Fame, and so he um, he came up with this this idea, and uh, he had some little certificates printed up, and he brought me one, and he said, uh, "He said I'm 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 the first member of it, and you're the second member of it. As far as I know, we're the only two. Oh, come on! But um, well, that must be good company. It must be really exclusive. Well, to get yeah, into yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> But I am, uh, I have won some awards and, uh, you know, I've been recognized. Uh, a very distinct, very distinguished career, certainly. <coughs> I mean, you've been a, a would you say, a professor here for 31 years. I mean, what's, I mean, obviously being from Wendell in eastern Wake County, I'm sure that things have changed a lot over the years. I probably don't even recognize Wendell anymore. No. Probably don't even recognize Raleigh or NC State. When I was born, I think Wake County had probably 100,000 people, maybe not even that many. Now we got like 1.3 million. More people coming in every day. One of the major changes in it is a lot more people and a lot more roads and a lot more houses. And a lot of the farmland that used to be farmed is now in housing developments. We have been fortunate on our farm to be able to hold on to it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's just a matter of time. It's probably getting harder and harder. I mean, even having that land, taxes are going up. It's harder for families to keep hold of farmland in Wake County, just paying taxes alone. So Wendell's changed a lot. Wendell's changed a whole lot. The, um, of course the town's gotten bigger and, um, a lot bigger and uh, a lot of the farmland, you know, it, it turns out that the best places to build a house is also the best place to grow crops. And so the what happens is is there will be land that has been in the family for, you know, generations. And as time has gone by, you know, the, the, the family farmed it, and uh, then they had kids, and then the kids didn't want to farm it. They got a job out in the city or somewhere, and... Eventually, uh, the original owners will pass on, and so you wind up with a farm that the only really connection you have is that big uh, bill you get every year for for county taxes or state taxes or whatever. So, big incentive to, you know, you don't really have any, any, um, any incentive to hold it, and so, you know, it's, okay, we'll sell it, and I'll buy a place at the beach or whatever, And, Mm -hmm. and that's what happens, and I can't say that that's wrong. I mean, people are free to do what they want to with what they own, certainly. Uh, but um, once it goes in the houses, it's probably not likely that it'll ever go back into farming. And you can certainly argue that in many cases, uh, the land is 
it's put to better use in a house than it would, was in the farm. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of land that was honestly been farmed for a couple hundred years and had been honestly mistreated and had eroded and all that. <clears throat> so it wasn't really good farmland anymore. So put houses on it. Talk, talk to me about this subject that I've discussed with my wife called rural brain drain, where all of our smart kids go off to university, they go off to the city, they get educated, and then they get their jobs that they went to get educated for, and then they never go home. I mean, I would say, you know, to some extent, North Carolina is probably suffering from that. What what would be what would be a fix? Are we seeing a potential fix now with the COVID stuff? We're seeing a lot of people moving back out to the country, wanting to get out of the city, being as they're able to work from home now, do you think that maybe we're seeing a little bit of reverse of that? I think it may be. I mean, you may, you can, there's examples of that. But uh, every generation, it seems, there's a movement back to the land. I mean, there was one back 30, 40 years ago when everybody wanted to move back and and you know live on the land, live off the land, and all that sort of thing. And so, I, you know, it, it kind of goes and comes. But, yeah, there is, there is a brain drain, no doubt about it. But, on the other hand... Uh, there is a lot of smart people uh, that are living on the farm and making a living in farming. Farming is different than it used to be. It used to be 40 acres in the mule. Now it's millions and millions of dollars in infrastructure. Most of the farmers that I have worked with in tobacco and in sweet potatoes and in other crops either went to NC State, got a degree from NC State, or their ki- all their kids went to NC State. And, in fact, uh, one of my graduate students got a master's degree here a few years ago. He's back farming. Uh, he's just one of many. He's back farming. And you take a a person that's got a degree in engineering, got a master's in engineering, and they're back farming. They're going to do some innovative things. They're going to figure out better ways to do it. They're going to figure out better ways to do it. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening. So there's not as many of them as there used to be. But um, these are generational farmers. These are generational farmers. Uh, for, not, we're not seeing a lot of new farms getting started. I mean, it seems cor- like a lot of it's cost prohibitive at this cor- point. It's cor- very high it, barrier to entry. It is. It is extremely high barrier to entry. I mean, the biggest barrier is the land. I mean, I don't know of anybody. I mean, I, I I can't I can't imagine anywhere in North Carolina that somebody would go and say, "I'm going to buy a farm and start farming." I mean, they may if you're already farming and they buy their farm adjacent to them. But just somebody that comes off the streets of New York and comes to North Carolina and says, I'm going to start farming. No, you're not going to see that. Because the land is a big barrier. Uh, the cost of land is a big barrier. But no matter what it is that you're going to grow, I mean, you're, we're, we're talking about tractors and we're talking about equipment. We're talking about barns and this and that and the other. And that stuff's not cheap. I mean, a, a big tracking there can cost you sixty, seventy thousand dollars or more. And so that's a big barrier to get started. So <clears throat> I don't think there's a lot of people that are moving into farming from somewhere large scale anyway. No, and there's seems that there's a moving, a, a growing movement for homesteading. A lot of popularity on the internet now about you know making your homestead and and having you know a couple of animals or whatever and you know yeah, growing your vegetables and I, that's this and that. that's fine and and in fact that is what's kept uh, a lot of these farms fly 
places in business is, is, you know, is providing services and stuff for the small backyard farmer, which is, which is nice. I mean, I, I, I got a garden. I, I used to have chickens, you know, all that stuff. It's, it's fun. Uh, but you don't make a living at it. Sure. Uh, and probably if you figure out what it costs you to grow, you know, uh, a bushel of tomatoes in the backyard, you could probably buy 10 bushels for what it's costing you. But anyway, it's, it's a, it's a fun thing. But I, I think, I think agriculture in North Carolina is doing, is doing good. Uh, they're all, they're ups and downs always. And, uh, you know, they're good years and bad years. This year particularly has been a pretty good year, uh, from what I can see. But, um, I, th- I think it's I think it's doing good. I think agriculture's got a good future here. I think we need to get a balance, um, and and we're kind of skewed. Those of us that live in urban counties like Wake County or Mecklenburg or somewhere like that, we're kind of it skews our perception that the whole world is being covered by houses. I mean, you get out away from these, and there's a lot of open land here in North Carolina. There's a lot of farmland. Got a good farmland here in North Carolina. Still. Expensive right now. Real estate's high. Everything's expensive right now. So what what are you tell me about what you're currently working on? What kind of products are you doing? What kind of classes are you teaching? I mean, you're still teaching senior design. I am. How'd you get into How'd you get into teaching the capstone class here? Uh, it's a good question. Um, when I was a senior here, uh, Dr. Roger Robach uh, was teaching senior design, and we idolized him. He was a smart guy. And uh, he knew a lot of stuff. And he he was a bit of a philosopher. And uh, we went into senior design. And back in those days, Corey, we all had individual projects. And he uh, he encouraged us to be creative. He encouraged us to, to do that. And honestly... And I've heard you say it. I've heard other other students say it. Senior design is the best experience I ever had. It was best. Senior design is the best experience I ever had. It really, really allowed me to test myself as an engineer and say, okay, can I conceive of something and then can I build this something and then can I make it work? And uh, that is a that's a that is great if you can do that. Uh, I, I've, I've told students, and I may have told you, that when I was working in the industry, I designed a big casting one time. <clears throat> and um, back in those days, we didn't have computer stuff, and so we did it all using templates and paper templates and all this. And so I would sp- I spent a month or two designing this big casting thing with 80,000 pounds. And um, I designed it, and I can I can see it in my mind. I could see it in my mind. I could I could almost feel it. And we sent the, the pattern off, and it got made. And a few weeks later, it came in. And a guy called me up one day, and he said, uh, he said I'm so and so down in, in uh, receiving. He said your casting has come in. You want to come take a look at it? And I said sure. So I got running down there, and I remember standing in on the back of this truck. They brought it in on, and I remember running my hands over it and and feeling in steel what had once only existed in my head. For an engineer, I can't imagine anything any better. That's a great rush. Any anytime you can design something and then see it in real life, that is great. Particularly if it works. Yeah. So 
anyway, uh, in, uh, senior design was, was a great experience for me. And so I really thought about it uh, some that I would like to teach. If I ever taught, I'd like to teach senior design. But I was working in extension, and I liked that. And so Robach was still here. Robach taught for 30 years. And then he up and retired. And uh, the department head came into my office one day, and he said, uh, how would you like to teach senior design? Uh, I didn't hesitate. And I said, well, something's got to give. I mean, I can't do everything. And so we, we agreed on some things that I would give up. But I um, I got into senior design in the fall of 2001 was the first year I taught senior design. Now, somebody had told me one time, it takes you five years when you're teaching the course to even get it halfway like you want it. So it's it's not something that you can jump in on it. And it's a done deal from from the get-go. You're learning as much as the students are, if not more. The thing I remember the most about that first semester was, you know, as you remember, senior design met, it still does, meets on Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons. Tuesday afternoon, September 11th, 2001, I go to class. All the students are there. I walk in the door. I look at them. They look at me. Every single one of them had that deer in the headlight look. Like, what are we doing? What, what's, what's happening now? I mean, we didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. The only thing I could tell them was that I remembered when I was a little kid in elementary school, and this was right after World War II, that we would have air raid drills. And they would make us get down under the table and all that sort of thing as if getting under a, a little table is going to help us to deflect a bomb or something. But it, but anyway, I remember that. And I remember I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was a real crisis. I mean, we, we, we came very, very close to getting into a nuclear war with Russians. And... Uh, People were afraid, and they didn't know what to do. And so I told them about that, and I said, you know, we'll get through this. I said, it, we'll get through it. it um, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of faith in, in humans' ability to solve problems and this and that and the other, and so we'll, we'll get through it. But I remember that, and I remember telling them, you know, don't worry. Everything will be okay. And um, I remember every one of them. I remember, I mean, it was a, it was a relatively small class, and I remember I remember them, and I've kept up with them. I've kept up with a lot of my students over the years, and uh, apparently they they remember senior design because they will send me pictures and they will send me emails and Facebook posts and this and that and the other every time something happens to them, and I try to remember them. And I, I one of the things I've always tried to do in senior design. I have this idea that um, I want to get to know all the students. And I mean, get to know them as, as individuals, get to know them as real people, because they are. Some are a lot easier to get to know than others, uh, obviously, but many times I would I would wander back and go into the senior design lab and uh, didn't have to, but I would go back there and just get into a, sit down in a chair and get into a conversation. Usually it would start off by saying, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? Or you know whatever, and uh, because I was interested in them, and I was interested in them because 
that's my job. My job is to teach them and to help them and to mentor them. And because that was what George Bloom did to me. And so I was trying to, you know, trying to been trying to pass it forward. Flip side of that is there has been many, many times when I would be in my office and there'd come a knock on the door. And by the way, I've never had office hours. I don't have office hours. If I tell my students if my white Ford pickup truck is in the parking lot, I got office hours. Students come first. I don't care what I'm doing. Students come first. But I had been sitting in my office, and there'd be a knock on the door, and somebody would come to the door, and they'd say, can we talk? And I'd say, sure. And we'd sit down, and we'd talk. And it would be, I mean, there was some heart-rendering things. Uh, this girl came in one time, <clears throat> told me she had been up all night long on the phone with her little brother because her dad had announced that he was leaving her mom, and she didn't know what to do and how to do it. And we talked, and we talked. And, um, and that, actually, this has happened a couple of times. I've also kept in mind, Corey, that probably, I mean, statistics say that half of my students coming from homes that where there's been broken family. Right. And so I've always tried to keep that in mind. And, and, and you know, that's that has a big effect on kids. And uh, they may not admit it. They may not. They may try to hide it and all, but it does. And um, I've always tried to be very sensitive to that. And, that you know, like I say, when somebody makes a bad grade, it's not always because they've been out partying. Uh, sometimes it's because they got a phone call in the middle of the night or something, all kinds of things. I, I've, I've had to, to counsel several students who had parents that were dying. And, uh, you know, they come to, they, they, they come, I, you know, I don't, I don't put up a sign that says oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here for counseling or anything. They just come to me and I guess they see me as kind of the, the nice old grandpa or something. I don't know. That's, that can give them a little bit of, um, a little bit of help. And so that's why they come. I like that. I like that a lot. And, uh, and some people don't. I mean, I've talked to other professors and some of them say, well, you know, I really don't, I don't like that. I don't like to do that, but I do. To me, it's 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 a big part of my job. I think that it adds a lot of value, and especially to people's experience here. I mean that that type of, I mean that type of experience with somebody, uh, they may not even have outside of you, and I think that, that that's incredibly valuable. That's true, and um, and so you know, I I've I've lived a long life, and it's not all been good. It's been, I've had some problems too, and and. Um, you know, I can I can use my experience to try to help them and say, well, you know, this is. Have you thought about doing this, or you thought about doing that? Is there a moment that you can remember looking back where you'd say, "Man, I wish I'd have done that differently"? Oh yeah, yes, I have. I, I, I yeah. Once upon a time, there was a. Um, um, I gave a test one time, and. Uh, I, somebody told me that my tests were too easy. Some some faculty said, oh, your tests are too easy. So I made a hard test. And I gave it to the class. And the class, I think the class average was like 40. Well, let me say right up front, Corey, that when you give a class your te- a test and the class average is 40, it is not the class's fault. It is your fault. You're not doing your job. I'm not teaching them the things that they need to know. 
And I regretted that. And so I have tried not to do that anymore. I don't, <clears throat> I don't do that. I mean, I had bad professors when I was coming up that were lazy and indolent and, and uh, gave bad tests. And I'm not even sure they could have passed their own test. And I was determined that as a professor, I was not going to do that. And so, um, you know, I usually will, will tell students what's on the test. And many times when I'm lecturing, I'll say, you know, this would be a good question to be on a test. <clears throat> and, um, but, you know, uh, as you remember, a big part of senior design is that I have everybody to memorize the canons of professional engineering. So here's the rules of the road. And, you know, this is the rules that you claim to be an engineer then you have to abide by these rules. I don't care if you don't like the rules. I don't care if you don't believe in the rules. This is what you got to do. So you need to know the rules. And so I have, I, I really think it's important. And oftentimes when I'm teaching, I will sometimes refer back to the, to the canons, some part of the canons and say, you know, when you're in a situation where you are told to do something that's not right, what, what, what is your response? What are you supposed to do? Well, the best thing to do is to say, I'm an engineer, and I subscribe to the canons of professional engineering, and it still tells me I can't do that. That's what you do. Right. And so I, I feel like it's a way of arming people, students. And in engineers as a group – we we, um, we we have given tests over the years um, to, to students about the personality test. And, and in general, engineers all fall into one or two different personality types. And it's personality types that are nice and accommodating and always want to do the right thing and that's helpful and all that sort of thing. And sometimes <clears throat> that sort of personality type can be easily taken advantage of. And so in order to protect people from being taken advantage of we try to arm them with okay this is this is this is what you do you don't sacrifice yourself sure to save somebody else that's done something wrong yeah you don't take on surety or responsibility for somebody that's done something or does something that you have no control over you remember the story i used to tell about the uh, waiver the guy had the, of course i did yeah i know you the uh, the guy came up and he had a um, a bunch of a shipment of bolts and they were like a couple thousandths undersized or something and they wanted me to to sign a, as an engineer to sign a waiver that they were okay and so I was you know going to do it just because you know I, I thought it was a nice thing to do and you know it's a couple thousandths of an inch I mean gee what can that hurt and my boss chewed me out basically. And, and and by the way, they they eventually signed the waiver. That was not the issue. The issue was that I was taking responsibility for something that I had nothing to do with. And we're just not supposed to do that. I mean, and, and so as engineers, we we want to be nice yeah. and all that. So, oh, that's a good thing. That's good. By doing that, some of the the younger, recently licensed PEs, I, I could see would be more apt to do that when it more beneficial to stand your ground and know know what you know but know what you don't know know what you don't know 
Yeah, you uh, you learn really quick, and you got to work somewhere. You know, you, you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the last hire, and so you're the low person on the totem pole. And they'll try to dump all. That's why they came to me was because I was a low guy on a totem pole at that time. And so you know, oh yeah, we can we can afford to lose him. So you got to be careful. Yeah. So if you had to name one thing, career teaching, sweet potato related or otherwise. That you were the most proud of, what would it be? Well, I, I'm really most proud of, of senior design. I really am. It, it has exceeded my. I, I started off teaching it, hoping that it would turn out the way it did, that I would be able to influence people and in a good way, and and teach them stuff and. And you know, prepare them for you know professional life. And I think it's it's pretty much that's what's happened. I, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I do know that as far as research is concerned, um, there's a couple of things that I'm I'm proud of. The thing about research is is that we do research here, and probably five percent of what we do ever amounts to anything. The other ninety five percent is wasted. But I've heard that research that tells you what you can't do is just as valuable as research that tells you what you can do. Right. So we we waste a lot. I mean, you, you look at the things that are made and they don't work and, you know, all this sort of thing. And so you say, oh, that's a waste. And, you know, and it's easy to criticize that in hindsight. But the truth of the matter is once in a while you'll hit it right. Yeah. And usually it's it's because of – just things coming together. It's, well, a lot it's, of people are afraid to admit failure, too. Yeah. I mean, one thing about SpaceX, which is unrelated as an industry, but related as in SpaceX publicized all of their failures, yeah. launching their rockets and landing, and everybody said, oh, well, you know, they, another goes another one, they blew up. But when they got it, they, they got, got it. it. They got it. So I think probably... Um, Looking at the research thing, of course, the tobacco stuff it, it was it was changing, but you know, the the tobacco thing, there was no you know there was no groundbreaking research. It was just applying something that we should have probably have done a long time before. Gotcha. The thing with sweet potatoes was I was at the right place at the right time. If I hadn't gone to California, I don't know what would have happened. Right. And uh, maybe somebody would have done it. I don't know. Uh, the only other thing that I can think of is that I would go out and talk to farmers, and I always enjoyed that. And I've got a huge amount of friends that are farmers that I can, you know, call on or talk to or whatever. And I would listen to what they had to say. And many times they would tell me things about growing stuff that was anecdotal evidence that they didn't really know why it was happening, but it was happening. And And one of them was, was about the shape of sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are sold by shape. If they're U.S. number one, they go for the dollar a pound. If they're not U.S. number one, they can go for a quarter or 10 cents a pound. There's absolutely no difference in the nutrition. It's just a shape thing. And we've trained well, consumers to want something that's U.S. number one. So how can we grow more U.S. number ones and less that look like footballs and and you know baseball bats and all that kind of stuff? Well, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that farmers have told me over the years. So a few years ago, <clears throat> I had a student in the summer, 
And so I went to the research station. They got three different varieties of sweet potatoes, and we brought them back in here, a couple of bushels each. And I gave him a set of calipers and said, give me the length and the diameter of each one of these sweet potatoes. That's a good job for a grad student. No, this was an undergrad. Oh, undergrad. Oh, yeah, undergrad. perfect for an I, undergrad. I, I, think he, I think he dropped out of school after that. But, it, <laughs> but anyway. And so he worked on it. And uh, <laughs> and um, I'm sure he hated it. But it, eventually he took all this information and he put it on a scatter graph. And he showed it to me. And he had put all of one variety in one color dots and another variety on another color dots and and core it looked like that somebody had taken a shotgun and shot a wall with it i mean they were all grouped and it said to me that there's you know you can measure that sort of thing one thing led to another and then we tried some more things later on with another grad student and then we tried another grad student and after about 10 or 15 years, I finally got a grad student, and we had, the technology had kind of come along that we had laser scanners, and we could scan, and we could scan a sweet potato and get 80,000 data points on the surface, and we could import it into PowerPoint, and I mean, import it into uh, SolidWorks, and, you know, you can cut it and dice it and slice it and do our, you know, whatever you want to, and it was great, and so I said, you know, this is what we need to do, and so it turns out that the uh, that the sweet potato uh, grading systems now, what they do is they take pictures of the sweet potatoes with a camera, take two pictures of each sweet potato. And we're talking about 100,000 sweet potatoes an hour. From that picture, they digitize the, the outline of it, the silhouette of it. They calculate the length and the width and the curvature and the volume and the, you know, all that stuff. And they determine what grade it is. If it gets kicked off into this grade or that grade or the other. They don't stay, store the data. And once it's you, I mean, it's gone. I had the idea that when we collect that data, and we already know because the farmers have this information now because of traceback and gap and all that sort of thing. They know when it was planted, when it was fertilized, how much fertilizer, when it was rain, you know, all that stuff. So what do we take and we take the spread of shape and size in a lot of sweet potatoes and then look at how it correlates with the growing conditions. And that was my idea. And so I go to the manufacturer of the scanners and I said, uh, how much data is that? And they said, we're talking about about six gigs, six to nine gigs a minute. That's a lot of data. You're not going to do that on a thumb drive. No, you might now, but My, not. Well, <laughs> uh, so we we were fortunate in that we were able to put something together, and we got uh, SAS here in Raleigh, uh, who handles huge amounts of data. Very interesting. It's amazing to me some of these companies that really didn't have much of, a, of an interest in agriculture have all of a sudden discovered that there's a lot of data out there on the farm. So we wrote up a proposal and we submitted it to. Uh, the College of Ag and Life Sciences, and we were awarded about a year ago a $650,000 grant. And I would have been the lead on it, but I since have gone into phase retirement. And so I'm I'm kind of the um, the old guy that knows all about sweet potatoes and knows all the growers and can get things done. I'm the rainmaker in the crowd. Okay. I'm the rainmaker in the crowd. And 
that is really taken off and uh it's it's amazing uh we have some brilliant people here on campus i mean some really brilliant people and some of the people are are people in other departments and there are some people that uh two years ago if you'd hit them with a sweet potato they would have known what they were hit with and i took them out to a field day and they get to play in the field and they just go berserk and they're like a kid in a candy shop and to see that and to see us bring together all these people with all these different skills, computer vision and and artificial intelligence and all that sort of thing, um, data handling, data curation, some new word. To be able to put all that together is a great, great thing. Now, whether anything will come out of it, I don't know. It may fall in that 95% that doesn't work, but it may, may fall into that 5% that did. Right. So... I mean, on that note, um, and this is kind of my, the, the kind of final, you know, in closing question that I had is what does the future of farming look like? What is it going to look like five, 10, 50 years from now? And what, what are the engineering students that are leaving here that are going to shape that future? What do they need to know leaving here? I think we're only going to progress. Um, I think that <clears throat> there are things, there are there are trends that you can look at in agriculture. One of the trends is is that we are doing agriculture in bigger and bigger lots. Uh, you familiar with uh, tobacco production? Used to we would harvest it and put it on a stick, mm-hmm. and there'd be three pounds of dried tobacco on a stick after it had been cured. Now we put it into boxes and we get eight, nine hundred pounds of tobacco out of that box. So the package size has increased and the economies of scale and just the cost per unit has gone down considerably. So I think there'll be some of that. One, another thing is, is that there has been, there was, uh, for many, many years, a, a big push for production, more, more bushels per acre, more tons per acre. That's still important. But what's as it's also important is the quality, and so it's not imp, it's not enough to be able to grow two thousand bushels of sweet potatoes to an acre. You need to be able to grow two thousand bushels of U.S. number one city acre. I have seen sweet potatoes that were U.S. number ones and ready to be harvested, and it would come a hurricane because harvest season for sweet potatoes and hurricanes come about the same time. And it would start to rain, and the farmer couldn't get to the field for a week or two, and the ground's wet, and those potatoes keep on growing. So by the time he's able to get back into the field, they're all the size of coconuts. Nobody wants a sweet potato that's the size of a coconut. You can't give them away. So we got a field here that's got 2,000 bushels of really good sweet potatoes that nobody wants. So what do you do with them? You cut them in the ground. Call it a loss. So I think that is, that's the quality issue is a big thing. And I think another trend in, I see in agriculture is that we got a lot of knowledge now. We, we know a lot of stuff. And we also have the ability now. It used to be that we would go out and we'd put fertilizer on a 10 acre field. We put the same amount on in, all over the field. Well, the soil types vary considerably. Where I grew up at, people used to joke that they were 10 different soil types in a one acre field, one of which was granite. Think about that. So 
you know, we used to just go out and put fertilizer all over the field and it didn't make any difference. Nowadays, we have the the ability to, to put fertilizer exactly where it's needed in a specific spot in the field. But more than that, we now have the ability to actually put fertilizer on an individual plant or whatever. And one of the things that we're doing here in the department is we are we're treating uh, tobacco, for example, but other crops too, where we have sensors on the machine that spots the plant, makes a decision whether it needs a squirt of this or a squirt of that, and puts it on there. So we, we've gone from a field-specific farming now to a plant-specific farming, and, and that really helps to increase the productivity and decrease the amount of waste and fertilizer and whatever and time and effort and all that. Well, i got two, two comments on that. One is it sounds expensive. But two, uh, personally, and I feel like that we've witnessed some of this in the past year with all of this COVID mess, is the large commercialization of any supply chain are more vulnerable to a specific disruption. So as a large-scale operation, right, if one thing happened, it could disrupt supply chain significantly for the country or whatever. I know it's a little bit easier logistically and probably cost per, uh, but if we moved towards a little bit smaller operation, perhaps maybe the barrier to entry got smaller, uh, even though the logistical side may increase a little bit, but we would see perhaps less disruptions in supply chain if something went on. So is there is there a way for us to move in that direction? Is there value in moving in that direction? I think there probably is. The, the flip side of that, Corey, is that um, the way the supply chain is run nowadays it almost requires, for example, with sweet potatoes, uh, if you're shipping overseas, there are, there are requirements that you collect this data and that data and you have this and you have that. And all that is expensive. And so it really does make it difficult for a small grower to get into. There, There is niche markets, of course, for it always. And I think that... Um, you know, we will see that. I mean, we've seen that with, with a lot of different crops. And uh, there's uh, the, the pick your own and, and all that industry is, is doing is doing well. And, and I think they will continue to do that. But I think when it comes to commodity type things where you're growing thousands of acres and that, uh, the economies of scale is such that uh, it makes it very difficult for somebody to come in and, and compete with the big guys. Sure. What What's the future look like? And combustibles like ethanol production, are we going to move towards some version of combust, you know, internal combustion engine or some sort of energy production and and clean burning that agricultural is going to be impacted by? Or are we going to see shifts in the types of crops that we're growing or producing? Well... (laughs) You know, there are a lot of things, you know, there there has been a lot of work in energy production. And I, I, when I came in in, uh, in graduate school, there was a, everybody wanted to be an energy engineer. And so we looked at things like gasification. We looked at ethanol production. We looked at all sorts of things. It's, it's like somebody told me one time, <clears throat> you could probably build an airplane out of lead. And you could probably get it to fly, but there's better ways. 
just because you can do something does not mean that you ought to do it. So just because you can grow corn and turn it into ethanol and you can use it in an automobile as a fuel, yes, you can do that. But is it cost effective? Uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. Uh, I, I know that. Uh, well, it's po- possibly perhaps now, not until we get a little closer to the end of our oil supply. Well, you know, we we were told here, you know, 15, 20 years ago that we were at the you know, end of the oil. And all of a sudden we got oil coming out of our ears. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, well, and technology is advancing on how to extract that oil that's and right. extract that natural that's gas. Right. It's getting easier to extract it where and, we, and places that we couldn't before. It's kind of like, um, you know, what are you going to do with all the waste and this and that and the other? And that was the landfills are filling up. And, well, we've, we've sort of solved that problem a little bit. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic when it comes to people's ability to solve problems. we got engineers, and that's by definition – the word engineer comes from the Latin word, which is ingenium, which means to to de- to develop inside, to be in your head, and then it comes out. You're you're engineering something. So I, I got I got I got faith in engineers and people's ability to solve problems, and, and we'll we'll solve them. So so the final note: What are the stu- What do the students need? What do they need to know today? If they had to write themselves a letter 20 years from now on what they needed to know, can, what what is it? Okay. The the thing I can tell, I can't tell them what they need to know specifically, but I can tell them this. Don't ever stop learning. Uh, I don't watch TV, um, and I do a lot of reading, and I read uh, eclectically. Um, I read um, histories and this and that and other, but you would be surprised that sometimes you will read things in one area that's not related to some other area, and it really does relate to it, and you can apply that knowledge. It's such an interesting response. In the last episode, we had a very similar discussion. Uh, Mr. Diamond was also a lifelong educator in high school, and uh, my wife and I have this discussion all of the time. We recently bought Great great Works of the Western World, which is a 50-some volume set of all of the great works from, from Western culture, from Aristotle, Plato, and uh, it, it's interesting reading, trying to read these books now and trying to continue to be a lifelong learner and reading, even reading the same book at a different point in your life, life. That's true. and having experiences and you you view some of this stuff so much differently when you're in your mid thirties versus reading the same book when you're a freshman in college. You don't. There's so much you pick up on, and the experience you have experiences now, and almost a different lens that you read this book through. Corey, you um, you remember when you were in senior design? We talked about engineering disasters. Yeah, and it was Three Mile Island, and it was Kansas City High, and there's you know all this stuff. And in the uh, in the in the in the midst of all that, I, I remember telling students that what you would like to do is you would like to learn by experience. You would really rather learn by somebody else's experience than your own. Uh, so you know, how do you learn by other from other experiences? Well, you have to read and, and all that. I was I was I was sitting at home last night, and I was reading a book on uh, on. It was basically on. It was a ancient historians, and, and one of the ancient historians was a guy named Polybius, 
Paul Weiss was a uh, was a Greek, and he wrote a little piece, and he said exactly the same thing. Now he he was writing, you know, two thousand years ago, and he said, "You learn by experience, and the best best way to learn is by somebody else's mistakes, not your own." And I'm thinking that's two thousand years ago. And what else does this guy say that we can apply? And it's probably a lot of things that, that it's. It's crazy. The more reading you do in the classics and even reading, I read Walden Pond um, by Thoreau. And you're reading this book that was written in the you know early, mid-1800s. And he is talking about the exact same problems then that we have right now. I think that if we, if it were possible to get in a time machine and to go back 10,000 years, and live there a while, and then come back and report what you saw. I think most people would come back, and what they would report on is not the differences, but the similarities. Yeah. People 10,000 years ago were just as smart as they are now. They just didn't have technology. I think the same thing is going to happen 10,000 years in the future. 10,000 years in the future, people are going to be just as smart as they are now. They're going to probably know a lot more, but they're still going to be people. Yeah, We're governed by our desires and our needs and all that sort of thing that is all humans share. And whether we live in a cave or we live in a mansion on a hill somewhere, it makes very little difference. Well said. So can I get you, give me your famous quote from Hank Jr. Well, we were talking about, uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you my famous quote from Hank Jr., <laughs> We were, we're talking about um, we're talking about that agriculture provides more than just food, and it has been known for a long, long time that people that derive their living from the soil and have a special understanding of things and practical things and that sort of thing. And it's because we got to be if if you're living on a farm, every day is different. Every year is different. My dad used to say there were never two years the same. Well, every, every, every day is different. Every year is different. Every morning you got a different set of problems that you got to solve. And that makes us very agile when it comes to um, facing life. Plus, if you live on a farm, that's your life. And, um, and you want to protect it. Uh, it's, it's more than just a living. I mean, Farming is a is an occupation, but it's also a way of life, and I think that has been known for a long, long time. Um, I mentioned that uh, back in the Greek days, um, the Greeks went out, and they were the first ones to really establish the family farm. And uh, so, when they were attacked by the Persians, uh, the people that lived in town, the Athenians, they can pack up and go somewhere else. If I'm living out on the farm, I can't go anywhere. I've got my I've got my my house, my barn, my well, my fences, my animals, my fruit trees, my vines, my crops. Everything's there, and I can't just put it in a bag and walk off with it. I got to I got to either abandon it completely, and and that's my life, or I got to fight for it. So here comes the Persians with a big army, and here comes the Greeks, and the Greeks defeated them. And the reason the Greeks defeated them was because almost all of them in that Greek phalanx with those 18-foot-long spears were Greek country boys. And they knew exactly why they were fighting and why they were dying. It wasn't because somebody had coerced them into being there. 
It was because they were protecting the people at home. The Greek generals knew this. Uh, and most winning generals ever since have known this. This is one of the big benefits of agriculture that we don't really recognize. But people, the people, some people have, have recognized it and uh, write about it. But, um, but it is a big thing. I mean, the, 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 some of the best people, uh, solid rocks people. And, 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 the, and the founding fathers of this country understood that. They, they envisioned a country full of small farmers. So, by so, Hank Williams so, Jr. So, 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 when you're out solving problems every day and problems come along, according to Hank Williams Jr., a country boy can survive. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been fantastic. Thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcast to be notified of new episodes. Remember to be on the lookout for new episodes at the first of every month. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and comment on what you like the most. If you know someone who has a good story to tell or suggestions on how to improve, please email us at info at ncretold.com. Carolina. <laughs>